Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 72. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind how long. It is a true universally acknowledged. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine or a lace of your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Spring has finally sprung in Boise, Idaho. We had sunshine and warm temperatures today, and it's supposed to be even warmer tomorrow, as in 85 degrees. Steve just finished mowing the lawn, so he may be a bit out of breath. He decided to tackle the job while it's only 75 degrees. I have to say it's a bit of a shock to go from 40s and 50s to 70s and 80s, but the warming trend has been a long time in coming. So, what do we have in store for you today? Well, I think we'll do another excerpt from a Serenity Ore novel, in addition to our usual chapters from Winds of Wyoming and Treasure Island. And we'll conclude with a poem by Patty Sheen titled, My Yesterday, and thoughts from David Roper about courage. Serenity's Revealer of Secrets, a Ruby Mountain mystery, opens from a male perspective, so Steve will begin the chapter. I'll take over when the story switches to a female point of view. The setting for this story is Elko, Nevada, which sits at the base of the beautiful Ruby Mountains. Cameras clicked from the sidelines, capturing his every move. Robert William Earlson ignored them like he did the stinging scent of muscle cream. He was focused on what he needed to accomplish, and nothing more. He pushed all interfering thoughts from his mind. All thoughts of failure, of disappointment, of bad press. He noted them down, using an imaginary pencil on an imaginary paper, tucking them safely away into one of his father's antique desks concealing them until after the race. You can do this, Earlson. Prove them all wrong. Your dad, the officials, the world. He picked up his foot, grabbing his ankle and pulling his heel into his buttocks, stretching his right thigh in preparation of the race. His chest expanded as he drew in a deep breath and counted to ten. Releasing his foot and exhaling, he stretched down into a lunge, allowing his lean muscle to stretch. Since his debut race, he had suffered grueling scrutiny from the media and officials. No normal human should be able to run like that. They studied him like a lab rat. At first, they examined him for steroids and other performance-enhancing drugs, but he came back clean. They wanted to poke him with needles, examine him with high-tech computer programs as he ran on a treadmill, measure his levels of lactic acid to determine why he could sprint almost a mile. But Earlson would not submit to such foolishness. He knew why he did what he did and how. It wasn't drugs or a mutation of his DNA. He was merely more determined than the others, more focused. He had to run, had to be the best. It was the only way to prove to his dad that he wasn't crazy that he wasn't wasting his life on a dead-end career with no future. His dad's comments about the future struck him as ironic, since his father's fortune was based on selling the past. 
Standing back up, tall and straight, a confident grin on his face, he waved to the stands full of spectators. More clicking of cameras assaulted his ears, the flashing lights blinding his eyes. He turned back around, forgetting the audience. His bright blue eyes focused on the track, the narrow lanes curving around the arena. Tucking a strand of his jaw-length golden hair behind his ear, he reviewed his coach's words. Run your race, Earlson. Just do your thing and the competition will wear itself out. Coach Richards was a great coach. He had taken Earlson's love of the sport and turned it into a lucrative career. But for all of Coach's good points, he still did not understand what drove Earlson to be the best. He thought that it was just natural talent and love of the sport. But to Earlson, it was so much more. Maybe this time, if he broke the three-minute mile, his dad would actually say he was proud of him. His dad would see that he had not wasted his life on sports. On your marks, the announcer's voice interrupted his preparation. Earlson stepped up to the starting line. Setting his left toe up to the start, he stretched his exceptionally muscled right leg behind him, balancing almost as if he was in mid-stride. Reaching his right hand down, lightly resting the fingertips on the track, curling his left up next to his ear, he waited. Set! Earlson focused ahead, intent on the prize set before him. A record speed. Bang! Earlson pushed away from the start, his muscled limbs jumping to life. As his legs stretched into their impossible stride, his arms pumped as though gears in his body were activated by their motion and created the momentum in his legs. He knew that to reach his goal of a three-minute mile, he had to do the first lap in 42 seconds. Left, right, left, right. He and Coach had planned out each lap, practicing each lap, timing each lap. He felt that he had memorized the feel of each lap. The first lap felt like the speeder race in Star Wars Episode One. His body needed to glide in easy motion over the terrain. The second and third laps needed to be done in 45 seconds. These were more surreal, as though he was Neo from the Matrix moving through speeding bullets with grace. The fourth and final lap seemed to be William Tell's overture, the cavalry coming over the hill on horses, chasing him to the finish in 48 seconds. By that lap, his legs would be shot, the lactic acid burning so intensely that all he would want to do would be collapse in a pile. But he had to stick to the plan. He had to run his race. Rounding the last turn on that first lap, he glanced at Richards, who gave him a thumbs up. Good. He was on schedule. Keep up the pace. He barely heard the whispered rhythm of the nearest competitor's feet, but he wasn't worried about him. He wasn't running to stay ahead. He was chasing time, chasing history. He pushed himself to keep his stride long and swift, picturing a cheetah chasing its prey across the savanna. The turns were easy, and as he rounded the last turn, his coach's face showed that he was still right where he needed to be. The record would be his. Only two more laps. The lactic acid in his legs burned and Earlson forced the heat to become speed, fire that would push him on. On the second turn, he felt like he was fighting his body. 
His muscle told him to pull back, to shorten his stride, to take it easy just for a moment. But if he wanted to reach the goal, he knew that he couldn't give in. He had to regain control, force himself to keep up the pace he had determined to keep. Push, reach, reach, reach. He looked to coach, hoping that he had somehow managed it. But Richards held up three fingers, indicating that he had to make up three seconds in order to achieve his goal. Three seconds! Determination steeled his resolve, and he used his last motivator. It wasn't the mocking face of his father, taunting him in a dark suit and red tie. Instead, he visualized his mother, her long blonde ponytail dancing as she moved, racing in front of him. She was why he loved to run, why he had joined the track team so long ago. Come catch me, Robbie, the imaginary woman said before she sprinted off ahead of him. Pam, they're starting. All right. Pamela Watson glanced at her roommate, Karen. Just a minute. She finessed her paintbrush along the maiden's dainty cheek, adding a rosy hue to her perfect face. And then she stepped back from the canvas to appraise her work. The tall tower, surrounded by a thick forest of trees, rose high into the sky. Mountains loomed in the distance, a golden sunset kissing them with promise. Rapunzel peeked out a window high in the tower, dreaming of her love to come. Her glorious golden locks trailed out the window into the distant ground. Why are all the princesses golden-haired, Pamela wondered, bemoaning her wild mane of red curls. She sighed, dropped her paintbrush into the paint thinner, and wiped her hands on her paint shirt, an old worn shirt that used to belong to her dad. She loved it because it still held his scent a mixture of old spice and dusty books. She wandered down the hall from her studio and into the living room, humming a song from Disney's Snow White. Someday my prince will come. Da-da, da-da, da-da. Pamela ran her hand along the back of the couch, where Karen sat with Sunny, her three-year-old bundle of energy who bounced on her lap. Karen was transfixed, almost like she was holding her breath. Pamela plopped down beside her roommate. Good race? Karen's eyes never left the screen. Amazing. Pamela glanced at the television. The runners were in a pack. She scanned the faces for the one she knew, but he wasn't there. And then the camera panned out. There he was, Robert Earlson. His long legs were devouring the track. Don't you think he's gorgeous, Karen said? I would pay to do a photo spread of him. He's like an amazing prince, in one of those books you're always illustrating. He'd make a great model for Rapunzel's one true love. Pamela swallowed a giggle. Robert Earlson was certainly one of God's more beautiful men, but she never considered him princely. She'd known him too long. After her family had died in a head-on collision her junior year of high school, she'd moved to his father's estate to live with her uncle, Jonathan Cross, her only living relative. He was her legal guardian, so she'd moved in with him at the Earlson estate where he worked as, well, essentially as the butler. Pamela remembered Robert as a cute, if rather annoying, adolescent. Not exactly a princess's dream come true. Do you think he can do it? Karen asked. Pamela studied the determination on Robert's face, which was like a finely chiseled Michelangelo. 
He was marble come to life, a true masterpiece fashioned by the true master artist. Her creative juices began to flow, surging in her mind as she transformed him into art on canvas. She grabbed a notebook from the coffee table, pulled her sketching pencil out of her pocket, and began to draw the intense eyes, the determined jaw, and the noble nose. The sketch reminded her vaguely of one she'd done of Michelangelo's David when she was in college. Seriously, Pam, Karen said, right now? You have to sketch right now? History is about to be made. Then this is the perfect time to sketch it. Why don't you use a camera like everyone else? Cameras are your thing. Karen was a photographer, and a pretty good one, too. She and Pamela had met in a graphic composition class in college and had been fast friends ever since. Both were determined to make something of themselves through their art. Living in small-town Elko, Nevada, though a great place to find inspiration, was not the best place for an art career. At times, both women felt their careers would blossom more quickly if they moved to Vegas or Los Angeles. But Karen was tethered by a divorce and a court order regarding Sonny's father's visitation rights, while Pamela was tethered by her heart. It was here she'd lived with her parents and sisters before the accident, and she couldn't seem to leave the memories behind. Pamela shaded in the rough sketch, critically appraising it and finding few flaws. It was a good sketch. Maybe he could be a Prince Charming after all. Pamela set down her notepad and watched Robert do the impossible. He lengthened his stride. The theme from Chariots of Fire began to play in her mind as his feet swallowed that last lap, eating up the distance between him and a new record, an impossible record. Excited hope bubbled inside her as she watched. Her emotions boiled as he stretched his chest forward and threw his arms back to cross the finish line. She couldn't take her eyes from the screen as he jogged a lap to cool down. Robert graced the screen with an easy smile, waving to the spectators. As she watched, she glimpsed a familiar look. His eyes betrayed a keen sadness. Perhaps it was the artist in her that saw deep emotion. Everyone else seemed to only see the triumph in his smile, but that look in his eyes pulled at a soft spot in her heart. She snatched up the paper, lifted her pencil again, and sketched just his eyes, not as they were when they ran, but as they were now, sad in the light of triumph. A commentator's deep voice came from the screen. Amazing. Todd, I don't know how Earlson manages it. He's certainly the most focused runner I've ever seen, said another voice. What's his secret? How does he push it so that his final lap is just as fast as his first one? I really couldn't tell you. It's as if hell is on his heels. Maybe it is. As Pamela darkened a line under the eye, she heard her phone begin to croon Nat King Cole's Unforgettable, pulling her from the sketch. Did you catch the race? The voice was her uncle's. He sounded as though he could hardly contain his excitement. In some ways, Uncle John was more of a father to Robert than his real father, George Earlson, who always seemed to be too busy for his son. After his wife Mary died, Mr. Earlson coped with his grief by becoming a workaholic. Trips to gather merchandise antiques from every corner of the earth, became longer and more frequent. Even today, George Earlson was not with his son, sharing in his triumph. Pamela assumed he was in Europe somewhere, acquiring more estates to sell, more antiques to make him richer. Yes, she said, still sketching. It was an incredible race. Robert is quite an athlete, her uncle said. I pray one day he will start to run a more important race. 
Pamela knew what he meant, for as long as Uncle John had worked for the Earlsons, he had prayed for their souls. Mrs. Earlson had come to saving faith before Robert had been born, but her husband and her son had yet to follow her. Keep praying, Uncle. You never know what God will do. Her voice held the optimistic tone that embodied her soul. She loved a happy ending. So, tomorrow? Yes, tomorrow. Pamela stopped sketching as she thought about her trip. Her heart began to race at the possibilities hidden in it. My plane leaves from Salt Lake at 11, so we will need to leave here about 6. You packed? I've been packed for months. Her one bag, a borrowed ancient thing from Uncle John, had been ready. She'd even nicknamed it Sam. Occasionally, she would talk to it, as though it would be a traveling companion, sharing in her adventures. She'd wanted to see England and France ever since she watched Ronald Coleman play Sidney Carlton in Tales of Two Cities when she was six, and had finally convinced herself this would be a working vacation, giving her the opportunity to sketch rolling hills and castles not found in northeastern Nevada. Tomorrow, she would be on her way. Secretly, she hoped to meet her handsome prince during her travels. I'll be there bright and early, her uncle said. I'll be waiting with bells on. She tried to calm the rising anticipation by sketching a peacock's feather next to her other scribbles. Love you, Pammy. You too, Uncle John. Here's Treasure Island, Chapter 24. I'll give a little bit of 23. I must have lain for hours, continually beaten to and fro upon the billows, now and again wetted with flying sprays, and never ceasing to expect death at the next plunge. Gradually weariness grew upon me. A numbness, an occasional stupor, fell upon my mind even in the midst of my terrors, until sleep at last supervened, and in my sea-tossed coracle I lay and dreamed of home and the old Admiral Benbow. It was broad day when I awoke and found myself tossing at the southwest end of Treasure Island. The sun was up, but was still hid from me behind the great bulk of the spyglass, which on this side descended almost to the sea in formidable cliffs. Hull bowline head and mizzen mast hill were at my elbow, the hill bare and dark, the head bound with cliffs forty or fifty feet high and fringed with great masses of fallen rock. I was scarce a quarter of a mile to seaward, and it was my first thought to paddle in and land. That notion was soon given over. Among the fallen rocks, the breakers spouted and bellowed, loud reverberations, heavy sprays flying and falling, succeeded one another from second to second, and I saw myself, if I ventured nearer, dashed to death upon the rough shore, or spending my strength in vain to scale the beetling crags. Nor was that all, for crawling together on flat tables of rock, or letting themselves drop into the sea with loud reports, I beheld huge slimy monsters, soft snails as it were, of incredible bigness, two or three score of them together, making the rocks to echo with their barkings. I have understood since that they were sea lions, and entirely harmless. But the looks of them, added to the difficulty of the shore and the high running of the surf, was more than enough to disgust me of that landing place. I felt willing rather to starve at sea than to confront such perils. 
In the meantime, I had a better chance, as I supposed, before me. North of Hall Bowline Head, the land runs in a long way, leaving, at low tide, a long stretch of yellow sand. To the north of that, again, there comes another cape, Cape of the Woods, as it was marked upon the chart, buried in tall green pines which descended to the margin of the sea. I remembered what Silver had said about the current that sets northward along the whole west coast of Treasure Island, and seeing from my position that I was already under its influence, I preferred to leave Halbowline Head behind me and reserve my strength for an attempt to land upon the kindlier-looking Cape of the Woods. There was a great, smooth swell upon the sea, the wind blowing steady and gentle from the south. There was no contrariety between that and the current, and the billows rose and fell unbroken. Had it been otherwise, I must long ago have perished, but as it was, it is surprising how easily and securely my little and light boat could ride. Often as I still lay at the bottom, and kept no more than an eye above the gunwale, I would see a big blue summit heaving close above me. Yet the coracle would but bounce a little, dance as if on springs, and subside on the other side into the trough as lightly as a bird. I began after a little to grow very bold, and sat up to try my skill at paddling. But even a small change in the disposition of the weight will produce violent changes in the behavior of a coracle, and I had hardly moved before the boat, giving up at once her gentle dancing movement, ran straight down a slope of water so steep that it made me giddy and struck her nose with a spout of spray deep into the side of the next wave. I was drenched and terrified and fell instantly back into my old position, whereupon the coracle seemed to find her head again. It led me as softly as before among the billows. It was plain she was not to be interfered with, and at that rate, since I could in no way influence her course, what hope had I left of reaching land? I began to be horribly frightened, but I kept my head for all that. First, Moving with all care, I gradually bailed out the coracle with my sea cap. Then getting my eye once more above the gunwale, I set myself to study how it was she managed to slip so quietly through the rollers. I found each wave, instead of the big, smooth, glossy mountain it looks from shore or from a vessel's deck, was for all the world like any range of hills on the dry land, full of peaks and smooth places and valleys. The coracle, left to herself, turning from side to side, threaded, so to speak, her way through these lower parts and avoided the steep slopes and higher toppling summits of the wave. Well now, thought I to myself, it is plain I must lie where I am and not disturb the balance, but it is plain also that I can put the paddle over the side and from time to time in smooth places give her a shove or two towards land. No sooner thought upon than done. There I lay on my elbows in the most trying attitude, and every now and then gave a weak stroke or two to turn her head to shore. It was very tiring and slow work, yet I did visibly gain ground. And as we drew near the Cape of the Woods, though I saw I must infallibly miss that point, I had still made some hundred yards of easting. I was indeed close in. I could see the cool, green treetops swaying together in the breeze, and I felt sure I should make the next promontory without fail. 
It was high time, for I now began to be tortured with thirst. The glow of the sun from above, its thousandfold reflection from the waves, the sea water that fell and dried upon me, caking my very lips with salt, combined to make my throat burn and my brain ache. The sight of the trees so near at hand had almost made me sick with longing, but the current had soon carried me past the point, and as the next reach of sea opened out, I beheld a sight that changed the nature of my thoughts. Right in front of me, not half a mile away, I beheld a Hispaniola under sail. I made sure, of course, that I should be taken, but I was so distressed for want of water that I scarce knew whether to be glad or sorry at the thought. And long before I had come to a conclusion, surprise had taken possession of my mind, and I could do nothing but stare and wonder. The Hispaniola was under her mainsail in two jibs, and the beautiful white canvas shone in the sun like snow or silver. When I first sighted her, all her sails were drawing. She was laying a course about northwest, and I presumed the men on board were going round the island on their way back to the anchorage. Presently she began to fetch more and more to the westward, so that I thought they had sighted me and were going around in chase. At last, however, she fell right into the wind's eye, was taken dead aback, and stood there a while, helpless, with her sails shivering. Clumsy fellows, said I, they must still be drunk as owls, and I thought how Captain Smollett would have set them skipping. Meanwhile, the schooner gradually fell off, and filled again with another tack, sailed swiftly for a minute or so, and brought up once more dead in the wind's eye. Again and again this was repeated. To and fro, up and down, north, south, east, and west, the Hispaniola sailed by swoops and dashes, and at each repetition ended as she had begun, with idly flapping canvas. It became plain to me that nobody was steering, and if so, where were the men? Either they were dead drunk or had deserted her, I thought, and perhaps if I could get on board I might return the vessel to her captain. The current was bearing coracle and schooner southward at an equal rate. As for the latter's sailing, it was so wild and intermittent, and she hung each time so long in irons that she certainly gained nothing if she did not even lose. If only I dared to sit up and paddle, I made sure that I could overhaul her. The scheme had an air of adventure that inspired me, and the thought of the water-breaker beside the four-companion doubled my growing courage. Up I got, was overwhelmed almost instantly by another cloud of spray, but this time stuck to my purpose, and set myself with all my strength and caution to paddle after the unsteered Hispaniola. Once I shipped a sea so heavy that I had to stop and bail, with my heart fluttering like a bird. But gradually I got into the way of the thing, and guided my coracle among the waves, with only now and then a blow upon her bows and a dash of foam in my face. I was now gaining rapidly on the schooner. I could see the brass glisten on the tiller as it banged about, and still no soul appeared on her decks. I could not choose but suppose she was deserted. If not, the men were lying drunk below, where I might batten them down, perhaps, and do what I chose with the ship. For some time she had been doing the worst thing possible for me, standing still. She headed nearly due south, yawing, of course, all the time. Each time she fell off her sails partly filled, 
and these brought her, in a moment, right to the wind again. I have said this was the worst thing possible for me, for helpless as she looked in this situation, with the canvas cracking like cannon and the blocks trundling and banging on the deck, she still continued to run away from me, not only with the speed of the current, but by the whole amount of her leeway, which was naturally great. But now at last I had my chance. The breeze fell, for some seconds very low, and the current gradually turning her, the Hispaniola revolved slowly round her center, and at last presented me her stern, with the cabin window still gaping open and the lamp over the table still burning on into the day. The mainsail hung drooped like a banner. She was stock still, but for the current. For the last little while I had even lost, but now, redoubling my efforts, I began once more to overhaul the chase. I was not a hundred yards from her when the wind came again in a clap. She filled on the port tack and was off again, stooping and skimming like a swallow. My first impulse was one of despair, but my second was towards joy. Round she came till she was broadside onto me, round still till she had covered a half and then two-thirds and then three-quarters of the distance that separated us. I could see the waves boiling white under her forefoot. Immensely tall she looked to me from my low station in the coracle. And then, all of a sudden, I began to comprehend. I had scarce time to think, scarce time to act and save myself. I was on the summit of one swell when the schooner came stooping over the next. The bowsprit was over my head. I sprang to my feet and leaped, stamping the coracle underwater. With one hand, I caught the jib boom, while my foot was lodged between the stay and the brace. And as I still clung there panting, a dull blow told me that the schooner had charged down upon and struck the coracle, and that I was left without retreat on the Hispaniola. Chapter 21 of Winds of Wyoming Mike scrubbed the griddle while Tanner loaded the dishwasher, even though he'd never been fond of dishwashing. The warm water and mindless activity slowed his racing thoughts. He stared out the window above the sink, hating the way he'd begun to dread the future, as if he didn't trust God to take care of the ranch and answer all his questions. Oh, there you are, sweetheart. The woman's voice pierced a solitary moment of peace. Mike's fingers froze on the griddle, and the rat-tat-tat of high heels across the dining room floor buffeted his brain like nails shot from a nail gun. Tanner muttered under his breath, "'Here comes trouble.' Tara paused in the doorway. "'I've been looking everywhere on this little ranchette for you, Mikey.' He glanced at the purposely posed woman. One hand rested on her hip, and the other was stationed above her head on the doorframe. "'We're busy, Tara. If you need something, talk to my mom up at the office.' She made a face, like she would help me. His gut began to churn. He turned back to the sink. Besides, it appears she's busy entertaining a deputy or two this morning. I thought she was too old for that sort of thing. Mike whirled and flung the dish rag at her. The dripping mass bullseyed the bridge of her nose before it slid from her face to nestle in the crotch of her halter top. She screamed, scrambling to retrieve the soapy rag. How could you? She shuddered and hurled the cloth at the floor. Tanner gaped at her and then at Mike. 
I'm out of here. The screen door banging shut behind him seemed to shake the building. Mikey, oh, Mikey, Tara sniffed and wiped her hand under her nose. I just came to show you my engagement ring. Mascara blackened tears rolled down her face. Her left false eyelash dangled from her eyebrow, the right one from her cheek. He backed toward the kitchen door. She held out her hands. I'm sure you didn't mean that to do that, darling. I must have surprised you. Surprised him? That wasn't the word he'd use. Teeth clenched. His, his breath came in uneven clumps. She turned her left hand over. Relief flooded his soul when he saw the huge diamond. Hallelujah! She'd finally snagged a man. Congratulations, who's the... He could not say lucky. Who's the guy? Oh, you silly ninny. She stepped closer. He grabbed the screen door handle. It's you, of course. Her eyes were bright and glassy. Surely he hadn't heard right. Who? She smiled. It's you, darling. I did not give you that ring. You didn't have to. Daddy and I knew you couldn't afford the size of diamond I need, so we made all the arrangements. He nearly choked. Next thing he knew, they'd drag a judge to the ranch for a shotgun wedding. Get help. You and your father both need professional help now. He shut the screen door open and ran the path to the house, willing the wind to wash the taste of her perfume from his mouth. He didn't look back, fearful of what he might do if he saw her following him. He had to get to his mom before the deputies twisted her words beyond repair. Breathing hard, he strode into the office just as an officer whose name tag read Deputy Ramirez asked her a question. You know anybody from Pennsylvania? Mike looked around. Coach wasn't in the office. Good. Let's see. Laura placed two fingers on her jaw. Dan's aunt lived there for some time, but she passed away. Mike, do you remember when? The other deputy, Bernard Caldwell, interrupted. He means recently, from around here. She frowned. Well, there's Kate, our newest employee. She's from Pennsylvania. Mike moved closer. You know as well as we do she came from Pennsylvania. If you did your homework. Bernard cocked an eyebrow. Oh, we've done our homework. Believe you me. He paused. You might be surprised by what we've learned. But we're not interested in Ms. Nielsen at the moment. We found multiple tire imprints on the side of the road not far from the entrance to your place that all belonged to the same Ford pickup. Come to find out, that truck rolled into town just about the time your employee moved here. The owner, a male, is also from Pennsylvania. Mike wondered if his mom was thinking the same thing he was. Could it be the man who broke into the Blue Jay? Did you find footprints or other evidence? Or was the guy just sitting along the highway enjoying the scenery? He doesn't appear to be the type to appreciate the scenery, Caldwell said. He spent several days in the Copperville jail when he first arrived. Yesterday, we locked him up in Rollins. His boots matched the prints we found by the tire tracks. Laura's eyes widened. My goodness, the penitentiary already. No, county. He assaulted a woman in the Rollins Hospital. Mike's heart skipped a beat. Can you tell us who the woman was? Bernard regarded him for a moment, then turned to his partner. 
Let's take another look at that desk. Other unanswered questions swirled through Mike's head. Could Kate, who said she was the cause of all their problems, answer those questions? Did he want to know the answers? His heart said no, but his head said yes. They needed to get to the bottom of things. But how deep did the bottom go? Here's an e-musing from David Roper. He calls courage. With God we shall do valiantly, for he it is who will tread down our foes. That's Psalm 108, 13. As a child, I loved the Wizard of Oz, and being a timid child, was drawn to the cowardly lion. In the end, as you know, the lion was given a medal for valor. Look what it says, he exclaimed. Courage! Ain't it the truth? Ain't it the truth? Physical courage is one thing. Moral courage is another. Sometimes the hardest battles are fought within. Emily Dickinson wrote, To fight aloud is very brave, but gallanter I know, who charge within the bosom the cavalry of woe. Fortitude is the name we give to this virtue. Fortitude is not simply one of the virtues. It's the virtue that gives strength to all the others. Chastity, honesty, patience, mercy are hard-earned virtues in a world like ours. It's fortitude that enables us to endure. Aquinas wrote, The principal act of fortitude is endurance, that is, to stand immovable in the midst of dangers. Fortitude is a long obedience in the right direction. It is doing the right thing over the long haul despite the consequences. Fortitude is sticking with a hard marriage, staying in a small place when prominence beckons, refusing to betray a moral principle to get along or to get ahead. We can do these things because God is with us, treading down our foes. I think of a scene in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. Jill Pohl asks, What do you think is inside the stable? Who knows, Tyrion replied. Two caller means withdrawn swords, as likely as not, one on each side of the door. There's no knowing. But courage, child. We are all between the paws of the true Aslan. Ain't it the truth? Ain't it the truth? This poem by Patty Sheen, who's from Colorado, is titled, My Yesterday. Today is a yesterday I will remember tomorrow. Will I recall those bygone hours with regret? Have I wasted them by bringing needless sorrow? Have I behaved in ways I'd just as soon forget? What kind of deeds and thoughts will I retain as I cross this bridge to the future from the past? Did I take the time to ease another's burdens or pain? Did I create a special memory for another that will last? Did I use this day to make a wish come true for someone not as fortunate as I? Did I help rekindle a spark of hope or two with a smile, a word, a wave, a sigh? Did I hold my family close today and tell them how much I treasure their love? And as I hurried along life's busy way, 
Did I take the time to pause and praise the Lord above? For each and every person I happened to see, did I make them feel their specific worth? Did I reveal the compassionate side of me to the poor and friendless of this earth? Did I make my heart an open door to those who needed my comfort? Or did I turn my back again, once more, on the lonely, the lost, the scared, the hurt? Did I breathe a grateful sigh of relief when that person who talks too much made their visit clearly brief? Or did I beg them, stay, as I offered a simple touch? Did I temper my words with my heart or with my head? To my beliefs and principles, did I remain true? Or was there tactless hurt in what I said? To those I know and those I don't. To friends, both old and new. Did I manage my actions according to God's perfect laws? Did I remember that I am here not for gain, but to serve? Or did I judge others by their weaknesses and flaws, giving them the attention only I think they deserve? When the sun sinks slow and today fades into history, as I count my accomplishments, will I be glad, knowing the world is a better place because of me? Or will I lament the things I didn't do that I surely wish I had? And that's going to take us out this time. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckyliles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carey Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.